this morning, as David has led us already this morning, we are going to behold the wondrous mystery of Christ from Colossians 1.24 through 2.5. And so, however you are accessing your Bibles these days, whether it's in the worship folder or the pew Bible in front of you or on a device, um, let's get there. And I will read for us our text this morning, and then we'll pray and get started. So Colossians 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the, the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we need your help to have its understanding and wisdom um, quickened to our hearts. We thank you that we have Christ, and in him is this glorious mystery, our hope of glory. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that, that we would have hope, that even in the midst of our toil and struggle, that you would be powerfully at work within us this morning. We pray that for the good of your church, for the salvation of the lost, and for the glory of Christ, and we pray that in his name. Amen. Well, I should say good morning. Good morning to you. It is still morning, right? It's not quite noon. Good. Um, I hope your summer is off to a good start. Some of you are probably visiting this morning. You're visiting family in from out of town. I met a man after the uh, earlier service from Tennessee, a fellow Southerner. It's always good to link arms with, with brothers. Uh, take for that what you will. Um, but it's interesting in the summertime how we kind of get into summer mode. And some of you are probably in full swing already. If you're already on vacation, have had vacation, or just dreaming of vacation, uh, you hope that it comes soon. Uh, but it's very interesting about how su- this summertime uh, affects us and how we kind of ease into this. It, it's comfortable. It's good. In a lot of, t- a lot of ways, it's needed, right? Uh, you, your feet, you, you put your feet up, literally or proverbially, depending on what you, how you uh, relax, But then there's always that moment when you realize it's over. (laughs) You know what I mean? Students, you know what I mean. Uh, Because in several weeks, that alarm is going to go off at 5.30 or 6. And you're going to have to get up 
and grab a bag and books and go back to school. And you're hating me right now for even bringing that up, I know, <laughs> right? Um, for some of you who don't get the joy of months of summer break, you know what a vacation's like, and it's, it's that reality of going back to work, getting back to the daily grind, and, and, and you just don't want to because vacation was, was so sweet. Um, and that's, there's a good place for that. There's a good place for rest and relaxation, but sometimes we, could, we can get a little too sunbaked, maybe, and it's, it's hard to restart. Well, I wonder if maybe that's where you are with your faith this morning. Maybe you've gotten a little lazy in your faith. Uh, Maybe you've lost a little focus. You've started to wander a little bit. Put your feet up, so to speak, and not take it quite as seriously maybe as you used to. Maybe you're not there now, but maybe you've been there or can kind of feel yourself slipping into that. Or maybe you know someone as you watch your, your friends and family who are drifting away. Maybe the relevancy of the Bible is being questioned. It certainly is by culture, and maybe you're being swept up in that tide. Maybe being together week to week with your church family seems more like a good suggestion and is just optional, just as long as something better doesn't come along. But then, suddenly, you look around, and crisis hits. You're in the midst of struggle, and weakness is exposed. Maybe your faith isn't quite as firm as you thought it was, And you're exposed. You wonder, how did I get here? I I thought I was stronger than this. I thought I was in a better place than this. Maybe you're there now. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're wondering how to get out of that. Well, this morning we're going to see that Paul, in his day, writing to this church in Colossae, this group of Colossian Christians, that Paul is working hard. And he is not lazy. In fact, he is contending for the message of Jesus and God's plan for salvation so that his brothers and sisters in the faith, this church, even those he's never met, will continue to strive towards maturity rather than slipping into this lazy, ineffective faith. He wants to rejoice and continue rejoicing even in his sufferings to see the firmness of their faith and so that they might be assured of what they have and who they have in Christ. That's Paul's goal, and that's my aim for us this morning as well. We want to look at what we've been given in Christ, God's plan of salvation, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Those are some of the sweetest words in all of the Bible. But what do they mean? We'll look at that, and we'll look at God's plan of salvation. But to what end are we given this hope? God doesn't just save you and then, and then leave you on your own. Salvation is not the end, but the beginning. Well, the beginning of what? As we look at God's plan of salvation, we'll also look at God's pattern for transformation, and those will be our two points this morning. So how do we press on? How, how do we have this full assurance of God's mystery, which is Christ? How do we have this firmness of faith that isn't deluded or falsely persuaded? So God's plan of salvation from 1, 24 through 29, and God's pattern of transformation, chapter 2, 1 through 5. But before we get into those two points, first I want to take a quick look at Paul's perspective on what he's writing and why he's writing. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Tommy started us off in this series, and he mentioned the context of this letter that Paul is is writing to this church, to this group of people that he's never met. He says so in in 2.1. He's working and longing for the encouragement of their faith, of the folks in this region, in Colossae and and Laodicea. 
so that they might not be deluded or persuaded by these plausible arguments which might lead someone away from the faith. So Paul was concerned for them. So concerned, in fact, that he takes the time to write this this letter to this group of Christ followers so that they might reach the full assurance of faith. Well, he uses this language throughout our section about toil and struggle and affliction. Uh, And that bears our consideration as we consider the context here because he says in verse 24 that his sufferings in particular and the toil and struggle that he's experiencing actually in his body is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, and we should be, right? Um, That's a confusing statement. It's hard to reconcile exactly what that means. Something is lacking in Christ's affliction. I thought, Paul, that you just said uh, a few verses before what we looked at last week in verse 20 of chapter 1, that through him he reconciled all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, and made peace by the blood of his cross. That sounds pretty sure and filled up to me, right? Well, in the time of Paul's writing, he was writing from, likely, from prison, And so he was likely in a prison in Rome, and he was uh, filling up in his body actual physical suffering. So he was experiencing this. And so as we decipher what this means, we should take that into consideration. This this suffering that he was experiencing uh, would also have come as no surprise to him. Uh, Because if you dig a little bit into Paul's biography through the book of Acts and see how he came to faith and how he was converted, he was formerly Saul a persecutor and murderer of Christians. He was converted to be Paul, the proclaimer, the great proclaimer of the gospel. Upon his conversion in Acts chapter 9, the Lord said of Paul that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So when Paul suffers, and he is suffering here for his faith, He knew that it was coming and he knew what it was for. So to Paul, it would have been no surprise that he was suffering, but what is exactly that he is filling up and what was lacking? Well, in much of Paul's writing, he speaks from the perspective of now and then. Now and then. Now, meaning the age of the church. The time in between the the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's the age in which we live. Now. Okay, then meaning Christ's second coming, eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. So for example, in Philippians chapter two, Paul famously says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh now, that means fruitful labor, fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ then, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh now is more necessary on your account. So Paul always has this one eye on on, uh, his eternal destination and the goal for which he is striving. But he also always has one eye on his earthly mission for which he is working and toiling. And that's no different in our passage this morning. In verse 24 and following, there is this current reality that God is revealing this mystery of Christ now, which is the hope of glory. When? Then, and in verse 28, we proclaim Jesus now so that we might be presented mature in Christ. Then, 
Paul is struggling for the church in verse one of chapter two. Now, so that we might reach the full assurance of Christ then. You see this now and then, this back and forth that Paul is, uh, is, is uh, speaking of in his perspective. And so this idea of filling up what is lacking isn't about our salvation now. Last week, Zach preached on what Paul has just stated in these previous verses, that Jesus, the one who is preeminent over all creation, the firstborn from the dead, has made peace by the blood of his cross now. So what's the then? Well, scholars have held many interpretations of this rather loosely because of its ambiguity. But many would argue that Paul, by his suffering, is filling up or completing the suffering that was promised to him upon his call by the Lord when he, preached the, when he preaches the gospel to the world. And when he has filled up or completed this suffering now, he will be called home then. Moreover, when, when he's doing this, he's doing this for the sake of the church. Because Revelation 6, 9 through 11 tells us that there is an allotted amount of suffering and tribulation and persecution that the church must go through before Christ returns. Jesus died, was afflicted in his body to take the punishment which is God's eternal wrath uh, for our sins, which we saw last week. But Jesus' sufferings on the cross didn't remove any suffering that we might experience or Paul might experience for the sake of the faith now. In fact, he told us that we would face these trials and persecutions. And he told Paul the same thing, specifically that he would suffer and one day he would fill up or complete, using his language, uh, what was to be asked of him and of the church. Again, this isn't an easy verse to discern the meaning of, and so we hold this interpretation loosely, knowing for certain, though, with full assurance, that Christ's saving work on the cross is complete and not lacking for anything now, but remains to be seen and is part of the mystery of how that will be fulfilled in the future then. So what does all this have to do with Paul's plan of salvation for us, God's plan of salvation for us, and God's pattern for transformation as we grow and mature and reach a firmness of our faith? Well, Paul's suffering, which he speaks quite a lot of, and his labor and toil should serve as an encouragement to us when we feel the weight of our faith when the going gets tough. Because let's face it, it's, it gets hard sometimes. When we want to slip into this this summer mode and just kind of take a break from it all, as it were, and we wish that our faith didn't really require anything of us, right? We can look at someone like Paul and know what kind of perspective we should be striving for about how we view our suffering and our toil and labor now versus what is coming in the hope of glory then. We see the the gospel bearing bearing fruit in the world We can rejoice in that. So just like Paul, we proclaim even when it costs us something. And so if you're a Christian this morning, a follower of Christ, think back to the beginning of your own journey. We witnessed the fruit of that this morning in baptism, which uh, is a great picture of someone's commitment to Christ. Can you be thankful this morning for those who toiled and struggled on your behalf to get the gospel within the sound of your hearing. Perhaps that was behind a pulpit like this, or maybe that was at home, or it was a neighbor or a classmate who told the gospel to you, who perhaps through struggle and toil didn't give up on you, but presented the good news of Jesus Christ, and God gave you faith so that you then could pass that oil and toil and struggle for someone else's salvation. 
Well, we are all stewards of this ministry that Paul has specifically been given to make the word of God fully known. So what is it then that Paul is making fully known? We want to get into this, God's plan of salvation. Look with me in verse 25, that Paul became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. And so God's plan of salvation is one that begins with proclamation. As we just said, Paul's mission and reason that he's able to endure all of this suffering and further to rejoice in those sufferings is because it's all part of God's plan of salvation. Salvation for the world. And his role is to make the word of God fully known. You know, that should be an encouragement to us as well. God God is using Paul and he's used many people throughout the history of the world to make God's word fully known. No, God would not use people like Paul, use people like me, use people like you to proclaim the word of God if God's word was not knowable, right? So our encouragement this morning is that God's word is knowable. We would not proclaim something that we cannot know. It's a mystery to be sure, but this word that has been hidden for ages and generation is now revealed and is to be known. Sure, it is a process, but that should encourage us because sometimes we feel confused or we feel stuck. Maybe we feel like we've, we've actually slid backwards in our faith. But the truth is, is that God is making this known. He's not hiding from you. He is revealing it and has revealed his word to you and to me even this morning. And this is the beginning of God's plan of salvation, to know the proclaimed and revealed word of God. So what is that word of God? Or in this case, a better question might be, who is that word of God? We have the proclamation of God's plan of salvation, and now we have the person of God's plan of salvation, and of course that person is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of this mysterious and hidden plan of God throughout history. He's been revealed, he is being revealed now, and we are in this age of Christ's coming before his second coming. At this age, at this time, God has chosen to make known To us in these generations and in generations previous and in generations to come until he returns the mystery of the glory of Christ. It's made known to all people, not just to the Israelites, to the prophets in the Old Testament, but to Gentiles, in other words, non-Jews, which is probably most of us in this room. In other words, the plan of salvation for their forgiveness of sins by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is made available to all people. It's found now in the person of Jesus and through faith in him, he will live in you by his spirit. And this is the hope of glory. He is the hope of glory for now and for then to come. And we cannot miss this, church. We can't miss it. Perhaps over time you've become underwhelmed or distracted in your walk with Jesus. You read words like Jesus is the hope of glory and it just lands flat. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity. It's a holiday weekend. Perhaps you've been invited here by family and friends or, or maybe you just came in on your own and I can imagine that coming to church, any church for the first time in your life could be a difficult thing. What are they gonna say? What are they gonna do? Right? Maybe you're here and you're discouraged. God feels distant from you. Or you actually do know that you are far from him and you're just grasping for belief. 
Stop here and realize what's being offered to you by God in Jesus. He calls it the riches of the glory of the mystery or the glorious riches. We have a lot of places that we can go and we go a lot of places to chase after riches of this world that we think will bring us value and meaning in life and happiness. We try to solve this mystery of the meaning of life, hoping for something that would perhaps even bring us glory or fame. Some of you this morning would just settle for happiness or rest. Hoping for something that in Christ, what God is revealing here is the treasure chest of what you're looking for. The riches of glory that we all long for is found in Jesus alone. You can be his. He can be yours. He's not hiding. This is his plan and he's calling you right right now. Right now he's calling you to put your faith and hope and trust in him. Perhaps today is the day of salvation for you. Or perhaps you would consider yourself a Christ follower. God does feel distant to you, which may be strange. You need to have that dimmer switch in your heart raised so that you might see what you've been given in Christ. Let this be an exhortation to you that Jesus dwells in you and in him you have the hope for your hopelessness. For he is the hope, your hope, hope of glory. Well, what does glory mean? In the Bible, glory has quite a range of meaning, but it usually centers around the fullness of who God is. The Bible talks about the glory of God, or in the New Testament, we're to live for or to the glory of God. And when we say things like that, that means that we should live in such a way that reflects the fullness of who God is and how he's been revealed in our lives. But here, Paul has in mind a future glory. In Titus chapter 2, he says it a different way, but it's helpful. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's in Titus, but in our Colossians passage, Paul is summarizing the same thought by saying the deposit and investment of Christ in you now will be realized upon the appearing of his glory then. And in the riches of this truth, you have hope for now and for then. Amen? Moving into verse 28, though, we see this plan of salvation is found in the person of Jesus Christ, and it is him we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus now with the warning or admonition and with teaching and wisdom so that we will all be presented to Christ in maturity then. Follow along with me. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he, is powerfully, that he powerfully works within me. If proclaiming Jesus and growing in Christ seems hard, that's because sometimes it is, and we should be honest about that. That's why Paul uses words like toil and struggle. But you'll notice that Paul is not lacking for power because Christ is in him. That means that God is at work to bring about what he said he would do 
and Paul is not alone. In fact, God is powerfully at work in him. So I asked about your faith a moment ago. Let me ask about your power. You feel powerless this morning? In some ways, you're feeling weak? What do you do? Well, the rest of this summer and for the rest of this book, as we look at Colossians together, Paul is going to outline for us what this maturity looks like. Next week, we'll look at this command in chapter 2, verse 6, that we are to walk in him. And there's going to be a lot of outworkings of that and how that's applied in our lives. He's going to warn us about false teaching. He's going to call us to set our minds on the things above, to put off and put on, uh, put off the old self and put on the new self in Christ. He's going to tell us what it's like to live at home and, and to be at work and lots of practical applications there. And apart from God, you are powerless to do any of it. Yesterday, I officiated a wedding for a friend of mine. And this dear couple is probably headed off to a beach now, of which we can all be uh, appropriately jealous, and that's fine. Um, but this couple is, is brimming with natural gifts and talents. Um, they've got a lot of life behind them and yet a lot of life ahead of them. And they've already made it far in life. And together, as they continue to press forward, just based on their natural ability, they'll probably be okay. But as I told them yesterday at the altar, even in spite of that, there will be times when the husband in Ephesians 5 is called to love his wife like, the, like Christ loved the church, which means loving in a sacrificial way, dying to yourself in order that someone else might have life. That doesn't come naturally. And apart from Christ, men, you are powerless to do that. But even beyond marriage, in our conversation here this morning, as we think about what Paul's calling us to, to proclaim the gospel to people around the world, to see the gospel go forth, we are powerless to do that on our own. And so if you are feeling powerless this morning, you need to understand that this hope of glory, Christ in you, also means that God is at work in your life and you are not powerless, even though sometimes it feels otherwise. You need to tap into the power that Christ is giving you inside of you and that God is at work in you. In fact, notice Paul's language throughout this section. He says, it's God's plan Verse 25, it's a stewardship that comes from God and it's his message that God chose to reveal. Verse 27, and it's with his energy at work through you and me now that will carry us through to then. And this is our hope and he is our power. So if you feel powerless this morning, understand that you are not alone and that God has power waiting for you in Christ. That is God's plan of salvation. But fortunately, God doesn't just leave us alone, save you, hand you a Bible, and send you off on your way. No, God has a plan that will continue to transform us throughout our lives and throughout our walk with him. And so chapter two kind of makes that turn as we look at this pattern for transformation. So not just, a pa not just God's plan of salvation, but God's pattern for transformation and within this context, he calls us to be transformed in three ways. And he's going to work this out through the rest of this book. And so there's many more ways, but in our section this morning, we'll be limited to just three. And we're going to look at maturity and being unified in love. 
Second, satisfied in Christ. And third, fortified in our faith. Now, Paul uses the word being mature here. Let me make one caveat about the word maturity and this call to maturity. I'm going to agree with um, an author, Michael Horton, who wrote a book called Ordinary, um, where he says, maturity is like deep sea diving in a jet ski age. You see, we want this glamorous and extraordinary experience, hashtag epic, or whatever it is now, right? Everything must be this. We want maximum impact, minimum effort. Our culture emphasizes um, uh, autonomy, even to the point where we could say we worship individuality, and yet we long for community. It's this strange paradox that somehow we miss. Growing and maturing in Christ, however, being transformed by God does take community, and we'll look at that, but it also takes time and it takes effort. It's diving deep instead of just skimming across the top of the water as fast as you can. Now, that doesn't sound amazing. It may not sound flashy. Sometimes it's not. In fact, most of the time, it's probably not. It's simply normal. And many of the times, we spend our days wondering why my life is just normal. Instead of being satisfied in what God has called us to, we seek some greater experience. But what God is calling us to here is to pursue Christ, to be transformed and he gives us this pattern towards maturity even in the everyday and it's a commitment to the pursuit of Christ now so that you and I will not be disappointed then so this end goal of maturity starts with being unified in love look at verse 2 he wants our hearts to be uh, encouraged and knit together in love now he says this Uh, in the context of the letter that is written to a group of people, not a bunch of individuals. So we use this word community a lot around here. In fact, we'll be discussing it in a few weeks in our Buzzwords series at 930. Um, That'll be, I think, in three or four weeks. But Paul isn't writing this letter to just a bunch of people individually. He's writing this to the church collectively. And this is a sign that a group of believers is a body where everyone is maturing and being transformed in Christ. And when that is happening, there is unity in love. Hearts are knit together. So why is this important and how do we do it? Well, it's important because though Christ is in you individually, he's not in you exclusively meaning that you're not the only Christian on the planet or even in this room. You have a bond with those around you because of of Christ being in you that knits us together in love. This is a oneness that we have in Jesus and it can be increasingly expressed by the loving oneness that we have with one another. So as you and I look around this room, this is a a well-built room that you can see all the way across. And now that I'm going to make everyone uncomfortable to know that you can all see each other, right? And then I can see you and you can see me. You look around and we have groups of people from all walks of life, of all ages, of all different backgrounds. And there are hundreds and hundreds of individual stories within this room apart, which, apart from the bond of Christ. Probably most of you would never cross paths, cross paths and maybe you wouldn't even be friends, just because you don't have that much in common outside of here, but in Christ, you have the greatest good in common. 
And so therefore, we are knit together by the greatest bond that we could possibly have. And so we have the greatest thing in common. And so we can be knit together in love and be a sign of the gospel for so many who are watching and longing for such unity in this world. How are you here at College Church in a position being challenged to be loving towards others? And then the flip side of that is how are you putting yourself in a position to be loved by others? Sometimes it's easier just to project lovingness, lovingly on other people and never opening yourself up to actually be loved by someone else. But to be knit together is a reciprocal relationship between you and the rest of the church. So let me challenge you to look yourself in the mirror and ask that question. How am I loving and being loved here at College Church? So being knit together in love is a sign of growing in maturity. A second way is to be satisfied in Christ, verses two and three. Those who are maturing in their faith are increasingly satisfied in Christ. Well, we looked at God's plan for salvation, and most of you, I hope, would affirm that salvation comes through Christ alone. Can we nod and agree with that? Salvation comes through Christ alone. How many of you, though, would agree that maturity comes through Christ alone? To look at the end of verse 2 and verse 3, Paul wants us to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Reaching full confidence and assurance, growing in maturity, begins and ends with Christ. It's loving, knowing, and following Jesus from beginning to end. No more, no less. Sometimes we call that discipleship. Last week, uh, Pastor, uh, Pastor Resident John Supica taught on discipleship in our summer forum. And he used this great illustration and quote, and I'm going to borrow it uh, for today. It's from a French author, and he was talking about building a ship, a, a, a seaworthy ship. And if you were to do that, how would you go about asking friends to help you? And the author said this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood. Don't assign them tasks and work but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. If you want to mature in Christ, you want to grow in your faith, and I hope you all do, no matter where you're at this this morning, young or old, somewhere in between, you want to have assurance of the hope of glory, you don't need more programs, you don't need more weekly boxes to check, more stuff to show up to, You don't need other books calling you to the supposed words of Jesus. You don't pursue understanding for the sake of understanding. You don't gain knowledge simply for the sake of knowledge. You don't seek to unravel this mystery just to solve it. You are called to maturity in Christ. Therefore, we ask God to give us endless longing for the immensity of who he is and how he's revealed Christ in us, the hope of glory. Because in him are the riches and treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As Zach asked last week, where else will you go? Sometimes we treat Jesus like we've found this treasure chest, treasure chest full of riches and wealth and it's great, we have, we have a great experience, we pay off some eternal debt, if you will, and then we leave him behind. We leave that treasure chest behind in search of something else to gain further knowledge and further understanding. 
from some other source. And then when hard times strike, when our faith is tested, we're astonished by the poor, poverty-stricken nature of our souls and wonder what happened. Question for you this morning, are you looking somewhere else or are you satisfied in Jesus alone? A person who is mature in their faith is someone who is striving for that, reaching for that full assurance and satisfied in Christ alone. Well, the last thing Paul tells us that is the pattern of transformation is that we are fortified in our faith. He says it in verses four and five. I say this in order, I say all of this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. So those who are maturing in their faith are increasingly fortified in their faith. At the beginning, I asked you how your summer was going. Uh, You may be planning to go on vacation or just having got back. And maybe if you like to go to the beach, you go to the beach and you take a risk. For some people, it's a risk to go swimming in the ocean. You know what to look out for. You look out for jellyfish, right? Anybody been stung by a jellyfish? Stinks. Shark. Look out for sharks. Anybody been bitten by a shark? Everybody's looking around like, who is that going to (laughs) be? I didn't see any hands, don't worry. But there are certain things in the ocean that can catch us by surprise. One of those is called a a rip current. Perhaps you know what that is. A rip current is when waves break on the beach, they look for their way to return back to the sea. It's the way of the tides. Well, a lot of times in the ocean, there are sandbars, and there are breaks within the sandbar, right? Right? And water, like always, looks for the path of least resistance. And so as the water is coming off of the beach with the tide and returning to the sea, it can find a break in a sandbar, which creates a funnel, the path of least resistance, and it will get back out to sea quickly. It's kind of like when you put your finger over the end of the water hose. It'll shoot it back out into the sea. Well, it'll also take with it anything in its way, unsuspectingly. That can be you, that could be me. I think that's what Paul's meaning when he talks about being plausibly uh, deluded, uh, but being deluded with these plausible arguments. The ocean sometimes and most of the times can look plausible to us and safe for swimming. But if we're not careful, seeking ultimate wisdom and knowledge in Christ, we can be swept away and before you know it, you're far from where you started and wondering how on earth did I get here and how will I get back? That's what Paul's talking about, that he doesn't want his people, us, to be unsuspectingly ripped out to sea by truths, supposed truths, that are in the end deceitful. So how do you remain firm in your faith? Well, that's by growing deep roots and strengthening the foundation that was laid for you in Christ. Salvation is in Jesus alone, And a fortified faith comes from him alone. Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 7. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. A few weeks ago, I was meeting with a group of men and we were wondering together what ministry to men at college church might look like. And we were kicking around ideas and what we might do to draw people in and then how to bring growth and maturity. And we had some, what we thought were great ideas. And then one of the guys in the group, uh, my friend Noah says, 
why don't we just read our Bibles? <laughs> and he was right. He was exactly right. He was exactly right. When we think about our maturity in Christ, we look for the newest or best, and sometimes those things are good. But what about growing a fortified faith that is centered on Christ alone and on his word alone, which is fully known and is made fully known to us? I wonder in that simple answer where you're at this morning. It was that simple answer and question on which all of our Christian maturity is built. It goes for men and women, boys and girls, the youngest to the oldest, a new believer to the most seasoned among us. Someone who is maturing in their faith is someone whose faith is being consistently fortified by the word of God. So back to my original question. How is your faith this morning? That's what Paul is after for the church, to have a firm faith in Christ. Perhaps you've gotten lazy with your faith. Maybe you've lost hope or feel powerless. Our encouragement and exhortation this morning is to be sure of God's plan of salvation for each of us and to be transformed in this pattern by mining the depths now of the treasure of the riches of glory that is Jesus himself, so that you and I might be presented in him then for his glory. I wonder what your next steps are and what you need to take towards that end. Let me close this in prayer and ask God for help. Father, thank you for this time this morning that we can be under your word and under its guidance and authority. Lord, I pray that as you have challenged each of us to look at what we've been given in Christ. Lord, we pause and wonder what you would have for us towards that end. Perhaps for some, Lord, it's to put their faith in you for the very first time. To take out and reach for this hope of glory for Christ that you're calling them to even now. Maybe today is the day of salvation. And so, Lord, would you grant repentance of sin? and salvation, giving faith to that person or people in this room who need to come to you this morning. Lord, for the ones here this morning who are feeling powerless or faithless or weak, hopeless, Lord, remind us, show us again, lift, lift this dimmer switch in our hearts so that we might see Christ our hope of glory. Help us to know that you are near and that you've made yourself known. You're not hiding from us, but that you call us to maturity towards loving relationship with you and with one another. You call us towards a firm faith and to be satisfied in Christ alone. Would you help us to grow towards Christ-likeness together? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.